Chapter 4 of In the Oregon Country. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information, or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Recording by Holly Mossry in Portland, Oregon. In the Oregon Country by George Palmer Putnam. Chapter 4 The Land of Many Leagues. It was a very typical stagecoach. That is, it was typical of the style Broadway would have expected in the production of A Girl of the Golden West or The Great Divide. Very comfortably you may still see them in moving picture land, a region where the Old West lives far woollier and wilder than it ever dared to be in actual life. However, this stage was neither make-believe nor comfortable. It was very real and very comfortless. The time was six years ago, and the place the one hundred miles of worse-than-indifferent road between Shanico and Bend in central Oregon. "'Do you chew?' asked the driver. I, who sat next to him, pled innocence of the habit. "'Have a drink,' said he later, producing a flask. And again I asked to be excused. "'Don't smoke, neither, I suppose,' the driver regarded me with suspicion. "'Hell,' said he, the country's going to the dogs. These here civilizing influences is playing hob with everything. Last three trips my passengers haven't been fit company for man or beast. They neither drank nor chawed. Not that I mean to be insulting. I assured him he was not. But times certainly have changed. The next thing along will come a railroad, and then all this goes to the scrap heap. His gesture, with the last word, included the battered stage, the dejected horses, and the immediate surroundings of Shanico Flats. For the life of me I could see no cause for regret, even supposing his prophecy came true to the letter. Twenty hours later, when the springless seat, influenced by the attraction of gravitation in conjunction with the passage of many chuck-holes, had permanently warped my spinal column, I would have been even more ready to endorse the threatened cataclysm. Since that day, when the old driver foresaw the yellow perils of civilizing influences, they have indeed invaded the land for which, until a couple of years ago, his four horses and his rattletrap stage formed the one connecting link with the outside. The iron horse has swept his old nags into oblivion, and two great railroads carry the passengers and packages which he and his brothers of the old Shanico line transported in the past. The change has come in five short years. Those who, like myself, went to pioneering for the fun of it, making for central Oregon because upon the map it showed as the greatest railroadless land, have seen the warm breath of development work as picturesque changes there as ever in the storybook days when the West was in its infancy. We are young men, we who chanced to Oregon's hinterland a few seasons gone by, yet already can we spin yarns of the good old days, which have a real smack of romance to them, and cause the recounters themselves to sigh for what has gone before, and, betimes, to pray for their return. Almost. Almost, but not actually. For who prefers twenty-odd hours of stage-coaching to travel in a Pullman, or seriously bemoans the advent of electric lights, running water, cement sidewalks, and other appurtenances of material development. 
Yet, of course, I realize full well how tame and inconsiderable the pioneering, if by such a name it can be dignified, of central Oregon in the last decade must appear in the eyes of Oregon's real pioneers, who came across the plains and staked out the state with monuments of courage driven deep with privation and far-sighted enterprise. Yet, while half our eastern cousins believe the West utterly prosaic, and half are confident that some of it is still at the scene of dashing adventure, and the dwellers of the coast cities themselves are morally certain that all Oregon conducts itself along metropolitan lines, the fact remains that most of the big land between the Cascades and Blue Mountains was untouched yesterday and is today the pleasantest and the least hackneyed outdoor playland available in all the West. Central Oregon occupied an eddy in the stream of western progress. On the north, the Columbia flowed past her doors, and the stream of immigration, first following the water and later the railroads, ignored the uninviting portals. Rock-rimmed toward the Columbia, lined with hills on the east, hedged in by the Cascades on the west, and remote from California's valleys on the south, this empire of thirty million acres has been a giant maverick, wandering at will among the ranges neglected by development. In 1911 the railroads roped the wanderer, when they forced their way southward from the Columbia up the canyon of the Deschutes. But my stage journey was two years prior to that. Shanico was a jumping-off place. It was the end of the Columbia Southern Railroad, which began at Biggs, and if a road can have a worse recommendation than that, I know it not. Biggs, under the grassless cliffs beside the Columbia, baked by the sun, lashed by wind, and blinded with sand, was impossible, and had it not been for the existence of Biggs, one truthfully might call Shanico the least attractive spot in the universe. The transcontinental train deposited me at Biggs, and the Columbia Southern trainlet received me, after a brief interval dedicated to bolstering up the inner man with historic ham sandwiches and coffee innocent of history, served in a shack beside a sand dune. Seventy miles separates Biggs from Shanico, and a long afternoon was required to negotiate the distance. For an hour the diminutive train panted up oppressive grades, winding among rain-washed coolies, where the soil was red adobe and the rocks were round and also tinged with red. Stunted sagebrush clothed the hillsides scantily, their slopes serried by cattle trails as evenly as contour lines upon a map. Then the rim of the Columbia Hills gained, away we rattled southward, more directly and with some pretense of speed, across a rolling plateau of stubble fields and grainlands, dotted here and there with homes and serried by rounded valleys where the gold of sun and grain and the gray of vagrant cloud shadows made gorgeous picturings. Westerly, beyond the drab and golden foreground and the blue haziness of the middle distance, the Cascade Range silhouetted against a sky whose tones became richer and more cheerful as evening approached. With the evening came Shanico. The evil that men do lives after them, said Mark Antony. The good is oft interred with their bones. So let it not be with Shanico, for then in truth of this town whose brightest day has gone little indeed would survive. 
Shanico was the railroad point for all central Oregon when I first made its acquaintance, and from it freighters hauled merchandise to towns as far distant as two hundred miles. Stages radiated to the south, and, in 1909, a few hardy automobiles tried conclusions with the roads. The sheep of a sheepman's empire congregated there, giving Shanico one boast of preeminence. It shipped more wool than any other point in the state. With streets of mud or dust, according to the season, a score or so of frame shacks, its warehouses, livery barns, corrals, shipping pens, and hotels, Shanico in its prime was a busy lighting place for birds of passage, a boisterous town of freighters, cowmen, and sheepherders. It, like its stagecoaches, was typical, I suppose, of the town found a decade or so ago upon our receding frontiers, and still encountered in the fancies of novelists whose travels are confined to the riotous territory east of Pittsburgh. "'Where are you bound?' my table neighbor asked me at supper. "'I'm not sure,' said I truthfully. "'Oh, a land-seeker!' Well, when it comes right down to getting something worthwhile, something for nothing, you might say, the claims down by Silver Lake can't be beat. They... And he launched into a rosy description of the land of his choice, which lasted until the presiding Amazon deftly transferred the fork I had been using to the plate of pie she placed before me, a gentle lesson in domestic economy. My informant was a professional locator, whose business it is to combine the landless man and the manless land, with some profit to himself, in the shape of a fee for showing each prospect a suitable tract of untaken earth hitherto the property of Uncle Sam. Another neighbor took me in hand. The odor of gasoline about him, it was even more pungent than the fumes of other liquids taken internally, proclaimed him an auto-driver. "'If you don't know where to go, let me show you,' was the offer of this would-be guide and philosopher. I assume him a philosopher on the ground that any pilot in central Oregon in those days must be one. In answer to my inquiries, he bade me hie straight to Harney County. It was two hundred and fifty miles away. But I lost heart, stuck to my original half-resolve, and declared Bend my objective point.' In later experience it was borne home to me that those pioneer auto-men of Shanico always sang loudest the praises of the most distant point. Their rate was ten or fifteen cents per mile per passenger, and on the face of it their business acumen is apparent. One hundred miles of staging, five hundred and twenty-eight thousand feet of dust, be if it be summer, or mud if it be winter, heaven knows how many chuck-holes, how many ruts, how many bumps. The ride, commencing at eight one evening, ended about six the next. No early Christian martyr was more thoroughly bruised and stiffened at the hands of Roman mobs than the tenderfoot traveler on the memorable Shanico Bend journey, and there were so many rich possibilities, nay, probabilities, of diversion." Winter blizzards on Shanico Flats were to be expected, while after thaws the heavy stages bogged down with aggravating regularity. The steep, villainous road of the Cow Canyon grade upset many a vehicle, and well I recall one January night, when a two-day rain had turned to snow, when the air was freezing but the mud was soft how the upstage and the downstage met in the awful hours when there was no turning out. 
Clothing was ruined that night, and dispositions warped beyond repair, while passengers labored and swore and labored again, until at last one stage had been snaked out of the way on a handmade shelf, so to speak, and a passing effected. Later we, who were Shanico bound were capsized in the mud. Half frozen, wholly exhausted, we finally reached the railroad one hour after the day's only train had departed. But those were incidents of the road. I think I never before saw a man lose his eye and recover it. Yet that was the optical antic played by my companion inside. He was a horse-buyer, and I attributed his leer to a cast of character one naturally connects with horse-trading, until all at once he was groping on the floor. "'Lost something?' I inquired politely. "'My eye!' On bank holidays I have heard Arry say that to Arriet at Amersmith, but as an exclamation, not an explanation. "'My eye! He's lost something valuable and is British in his expression,' thought I innocently. So I inquired if I could help him in the search. "'And er, what was it that you lost?' I added. "'My eye!' He glowered up at me, and the flicker of the match I held showed a one-eyed face. The eye that had stared at me askew a few minutes before was missing. Finally the glass optic was recovered, and he explained that the dust, working in about it, irritated him, so that occasionally he slipped it out for cleaning with his handkerchief. During such a polishing it had slipped to the floor. "'I never get caught,' he added with a touch of pride. "'Here's number two in case of accidents.' and he fished a substitute from his pocket. That second eye, I noted by daylight later, was blue, while his own was brown. No doubt it is difficult to get eyes that match. As we bumped along a valley bottom, shrouded in our tenacious cloud of dust, the driver, with whom I rode again, pointed out a couple of ultra-prosperous-appearing ranches. "'Millionaire's Row,' he chuckled. They don't pay interest, but they're real wild and western when it comes to frills. Further up the line you'll see something rich, perhaps. The promised attraction was a young gentleman in a silk shirt and white flannels following a plow down a furrow, and in turn followed by an aristocratic-looking bulldog. The dog, explained my companion, is Blue Blood Borston. His pedigree's a heap longer than mine, and valued at more thousand dollars than I dare tell. His boss there has a daddy worth a million or so, and when he himself ain't farming, he scoots around in a $5,000 automobile. But mostly he plays rancher and makes hay and beds down the hosses and all the rest of it. It's a queer game. Crazy's what I call it. There's a whole nest of them hereabouts. So we saw the unidle rich laboring in the fields. In the nature of things, the old-timers regard the species with amusement, figuring now and then how many cuttings of alfalfa it would take to pay for the Boston bull, and attempting to determine why anyone with an income should elect such an existence with the wide world at their beck. This was my introduction to the land of great distances, twenty-odd hours of toil over rolling plains of sagebrush, green-floored valleys, timbered hill-lands, always, their indelible influence is the first impression of the newcomer whose outlook is a fraction higher than the earth he treads, always with the mountains of the western skyline dominating whatever panorama presented itself. Peaks turbaned with white, tousled foothills, 
olive green, their limitless forests of pine surging upward from the level of the sage-carpeted, juniper-studded plains. The land of many miles and of broad, beautiful views is Oregon's hinterland. Many miles? I truly. My friend Kincaid drives his auto trucks to Burns, 150 miles to the southeast. Southwards to Silver Lake is another truck line, 90 miles long, which daily bears Uncle Sam's mails to the inland communities, a notable example of the pioneering of this age of gasoline. Each morning automobiles start from Bend, the railroad's end, for paltry jumps of from 50 to 300 miles, and the passengers drink their final cup of coffee with the indifference a Staten Island dweller accords a contemplated trip across the bay. Viewed sanely, the contempt for distances is appalling, at least as distance is measured elsewhere. An instance this. Burns is 150 miles from Bend. A year or two ago, through the enterprise of citizens of the two communities, a new road was opened between, scarcely a road, but a passageway among the sagebrush navigable with motor-driven craft. It is to celebrate— so some forty citizens of Bend, in a fourth that many cars, make the little jaunt to Burns. They leave at dawn, they reach Burns that night, they are dined and wined, and the road marriage of their town is fittingly celebrated. Then, another dawn being upon them, they deem it folly to waste time with trivialities like sleep. They crank their cars, and they are back at Bend, and, lo, it is but the evening of the second day. The past, naturally, was worse than the present, so far as the difficulties of great mileage are concerned. The little town of Silver Lake in south-central Oregon today is in the lap of luxury, transportationally speaking, being but a beggarly ninety miles from a railroad. But in the early nineties no one but a centipede would have considered frequent calls at Silver Lake with any equanimity. Then all the freight came from the Dalles, 230 miles to the north, and the tariff often showed four cents a pound, which must have contributed fearfully to the high cost of living, not to mention the cost of high living, with wet goods weighing what they do. When the roads were good and teamsters moderately sober, the round trip occupied forty days, one way light, the return loaded. In all the 230 miles, Prineville was the only town, and some of the camps were dry. "'The town couldn't help but grow,' an old-timer confided to me. "'You see, it was such a dern fierce trip. "'After a feller tried it once, he never wanted to repeat. "'So he stayed with us.'" Burns, over in Harney County, in the southeastern portion of the state, is another example of what the long haul means. During the summer of comparatively good roads, the 150 miles to the railroad isn't especially serious, but when winter comes, the outside is far away indeed, and often for two months no freight at all contrives to negotiate the gumbo, snow, and frozen ruts. So, late in the autumn, the Burns merchant lays in a winter stock, while the auto trucks hibernate, and the burdens of such forehandedness, no doubt, are shifted to the shoulders of his customers." Modernity has not swept the field clean even today, and gasoline scarce yet outranks hay as a fuel for the mile-makers. 
the settler and the landlooker move on their restless rounds in the white-canvassed prairie schooner of old and the great freighting outfits which have borne the tonnage of the west since there was a white man's west still churn the dust with the hoofs of their straining horses and the wheels of their lurching wagons you will find them everywhere in the railless lands the freighters and their teams they are camped by the water-hole in the desert or where there is no water and they must depend upon barrels they bring with them the little fire of sagebrush roots or greasewood shows the string of wagons two three or four strung out by the roadside with the horses from four to twelve munching hay they are in the timber in the country of lakes to the south on the grassy ranges in fact you find the freighters where there is freight to be hauled and that is where men are but today all of central oregon is not railroadless land the trail of steel has pushed to the heart of the country and what a contrast to the old shanico stage days it is to roll smoothly into bend over ninety-pound rails picturesque too was the sudden breaking of the long spell when the transportation kings constructed their lines up the canyon of the deschutes twice as they built i walked the length of that hundred-mile-long defile seeing the dawn of progress in the very breaking and viewing what is to me the most stupendously appealing river scenery in all the northwest this same canyon of the deschutes end of chapter four recording by holly mossery in portland oregon